The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. The world continues to turn. The press briefing continues to be attended virtually by people who continue to ask stupid questions and the row over whether to wear a mask or not continues to rage. It also happens to be the Queen's birthday, but we're not celebrating and I'll tell you why in a minute. This morning, there is a very definite change in the news agenda with all newspapers seemingly deciding on different lead stories. The Sun goes with Prince Philip's inspiring message to NHS workers yesterday. The Times refers to warn that wearing a mask might actually risk a shortage for those health workers who really need them. The Telegraph leads with doubts over Matt Hancock's testing targets. And the Daily Mail prefers to make half of their front page about secret text messages between Harry and Meghan's father ahead of this week's court case. There's plenty going on, but the story is shifting and more and more experts are convinced that the peak of the virus spread is definitely over. Now the debate moves to the lockdown and what our next challenge will be. I'll be talking to former Conservative MP and former Special Advisor to David Davis, Stuart Jackson. 0344 499 1000 is the number. We'll bring you the latest news from the Chateau Marmont as well, where Meghan and Harry are holed up in their luxury bungalow in California. But of course, we want to hear from you as well. We didn't get enough of you on yesterday, so we are determined to hear more of your voices this morning. Tell us what you're seeing, what you're hearing, and you, of course, are the eyes and ears of the independent republic of Mike Graham. 0344 499 1000. Coming up later on, we'll find out what's going on with the oil price. And Gemma Godfrey joins us from the Times Money Mentor, and MasterChef John Tyrone will be popping along as well. And don't forget to get your children around the radio for our homeschooling session, which today will be bringing us a virtual tour of the Tower of London. 0344 499 1000. You're listening to me, Mike Graham, right here on the fastest growing radio station on the planet. It is, of course, Talk Radio. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Now, before we get started, we wish to note that it is the Queen's birthday, where she has earned 94 years of age. And as ever, the Queen has got it absolutely spot on. She has judged the mood of the nation and she has told everyone that she does not want them to celebrate her birthday. She does not want a 21-gun salute in St James's Park. She does not want there to be banners flown. She does not want to have the red arrows flying over Buckingham Palace. And she certainly doesn't want anyone out on the streets tonight clapping on her behalf. And do you know what? She's absolutely right because the mood of the nation would suggest that even though we love the Queen, even though we really respect the Queen, and even though we would love to celebrate her birthday... This time around, we're just not going to do it. So on this show, we are not going to be playing the national anthem. You have every right, if you wish to, to wish her a happy birthday when you call in uh, and you can say whatever you want. But I just want to tell you this. The Queen is definitely the backbone of this nation. The Queen is absolutely and utterly the correct judge of the mood of this country and she represents everything that is good about this country. So I'm going to say happy birthday, Your Majesty, uh, and let it end at that. Let's talk to Stuart Jackson, who's here with us. Stuart, very good morning. Good morning, Mike. I'm not at the Chateau Marmont uh, with, <laughs> what a pity. With, with, with the Sussexes, unfortunately. Well, if only they took a leaf out of the book of Prince Philip yesterday, who made a great speech on behalf of the NHS workers, and the Queen herself, uh, who today has asked everybody not to worry about her birthday, not to bother about it. You know, she just can't seem to do anything but get everything right every single time. Absolutely. And if we look back uh, a week or so to her fantastic address, it was pitch perfect. Yes. Uh, it was typical of her. Uh, she, she didn't get political, but she 
she really empathised with the concerns, the worries, the anxiety of the British people. And it's always for her and Prince Philip and some of the other royals, like uh, Princess Anne, it's about public duty and service rather than self-interested, narcissistic PR gimmicks like some perhaps we could uh, mention yes, recently. Yes, exactly right. And do you share, like I do, this view uh, abroad, which seems to be getting more and more sort of uh, credence, that, that the peak would appear to have passed as far as the numbers are concerned, they're going down. The medical experts seem to have got that part of it right. Um, we seem to have also got the making sure that everybody stays away from the NHS part right as well. Um, and the conversation now turns to kind of the lockdown and what we do next. I think it's likely we have reached the peak, but there's a lot of what the Americans call Monday morning quarterbacks, people who are wise after the event, who have uh, professorships in hindsight. Yes. We saw that from the Sunday Times with their threadbare hit job on the Prime Minister yes. uh, on Sunday, which, you know, as you quite rightly said on your show, fell apart, fell into dust mm. within a few hours. I mean, I, I counted at least two actual factual errors in that piece. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, I've never seen such—I've never seen such an excoriating statement. And everybody that I spoke to last night, who also saw it uh, over the previous twenty-four hours, couldn't believe that the government could be so damning of one story. No, because I think it's important for them to to kill outright this uh, attempt by people uh, who, for instance, have not accepted that we're leaving the European Union, yes. or particularly for other reasons, hate Boris Johnson. This narrative that the government is either harsh, incompetent, uncaring, wants lots of people to die, doesn't care. This nonsense. You know, this, and I hate to say it because it's, it's a word that's overused, but I can't think of another word. It is literally unprecedented, the experience we're going through. Yes. You know, however many uh, exercises you've gone through on mad cow disease or SARS, this is at a different level. And therefore, you know, the, politicians and civil servants are already human. We can't predict. We have to look at the evidence as we get it. And, you know, the fact is the Prime Minister... Uh, followed the evidence closely and the scientific evidence changed. That doesn't mean he's wrong or the scientists are wrong. They were grappling with something they'd never seen before. But in answer to your question, I think this traffic light system that's been mooted yesterday and Sunday uh, in the media of different aspects, different sectors and businesses in the, in, in the UK mm. opening... Uh, incrementally over a period of time is probably the sensible way forward. I know my own view is people are champing at the bit to get kids back in school yeah. because this is a long-term problem, uh, particularly as Robert Health and the Education Select Committee Chairman said yesterday, uh, you know, underprivileged kids, kids whose parents are not perhaps as committed to education as others, you know, those kids need their teachers. They need the structure yeah. of a school day and they need to be back in their lessons. Yes, they do. And also, I think there is definitely um, a, a, a sort of a, an appetite, shall we say, for other sorts of shops to open up. I mean, I was walking into work this morning from a slightly different car park um, and I walked past a deli, uh, an Italian deli in Borough High Street, which is now open for business and is serving breakfast. So I find that quite encouraging. Yeah, well, I think that what what uh, what the government has done is is been quite um, liberal in the way it's interpreted regulations for say takeout. Mm. I think they should allow more businesses like pizza restaurants, like fast food, to do takeout if there were proper checks. 
uh, with their staff and in terms of hygiene and regulations. We should start doing that. That's very, very important. But schools, garden centres, you know, I think it's a, a terrible shame that millions and millions of plants uh, are going to be just chucked in a skip uh, because garden centres can't sell in their peak period, which is the spring, yes. which is now. Uh, and I think, actually, in terms of people's mental health and well-being and happiness, for, to be able to socially distance at a garden centre to buy plants. I mean, I'm going to paint my front door this week, right. but I'm wondering... What you know, colour are you doing? What, what colour are you going for? Well, like, in honour of the Rolling Stones, I'm going to paint it black, Mike. <laughs> uh, Excellent. But, but, Was it red? Know, by any chance? It, it, no, it, it wasn't. It's, <laughs> it's a rather faded, sad black, and I'm okay. going to give it a new look. I wanted to paint it blue, obviously, but Mrs. Jackson says it's got to be black. Okay. Um, but I'm wondering, you know, where can I get a pot of paint, a new pot of paint, to paint my door? And I think it's things like that. Obviously, it's not. That's not a vital trip. Mm. But I think gradually, you know, once you get past four or five weeks, people are actually going to be ignoring the lockdown potentially because they're going to say look i'm going to take a chance i can't see my mortgage my business my savings you know my job crash permanently and i think the government therefore have got to be ahead of the game in in um, at least uh, giving a way forward for people obviously they can't publish a detailed plan these idiots like piers morgan saying you know oh they've got to have a detailed plan of course the minute they talk about a detailed plan everyone will be out in the park in the shops in the cinema well, this is what i've been saying to people That's about for example down in sussex where i haven't been for about a month now um the beaches are technically closed okay now that doesn't mean that if you live near the beach you can't go on it but what it does mean is that if the weather turns nice again at the weekend and they say the beaches are open all these morons will drive down there and start hanging out on the beach and having picnics and barbecues and all the rest of it and that's not what we need no i think good, good common sense also discretion uh and light touch policing you know we have seen a few uh, inc instances on social media of hot, of uh, heavy-handed policing uh, i know the guy that was immortalized last week on twitter the police officer in the park has i, I understand has been suspended yeah um, and that was right, because he wasn't professional. Is this the guy and who was saying you're killing people by standing about two uh, uh, sort of inches away from a bloke and shouting in his face? I think this is a bloke in Greater Manchester police oh, officer sorry. who was saying... Um, the one who said, uh, I'll just make something up. Yeah, 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 and he was swearing and being obnoxious. Mm. That's not a way to treat people. No. You know, people, everyone's under stress, and the police are doing a fantastic job. I speak as the son and brother of police officers, you know, they are doing a very difficult job. Again, they've never had this to deal with before, but they have to do it in a sensitive way because they have to understand there are a lot of people that are very worried, that don't have family, mm. don't know what to do, relying on media, which is not always accurate, yeah. and they need to be a bit sensitive. But I think if there is a way forward for the government, I, I know talking to ministers and officials, but they're desperate to get a plan in place. But what they don't want is to get to September and October and have a tsunami, a second wave of this, which basically damages the economy and the health of the country, in, even in a worse way. than Because that's actually the experience of the 1918 Spanish flu, that more people died in the second wave than the first wave. 
And, you know, that that could be a very real danger that the government is very mindful of. Yes, exactly right. And I suppose the point of, of, of watching other countries at the moment is going to be crucial as well, because Spain obviously lifted a little bit of their lockdown last week. Um, too early to tell whether that's been a success. But in two weeks time, perhaps we'll learn something from that. Yeah, uh, you know, there's a, there's a spectrum, isn't there, from very tough lockdown regime uh, as pursued by, say, the French government. Yeah. And then you've got the S Swedish situation where they've been very light touch. They've allowed a little bit of mingling, uh, light touch social distancing. And I think w within the next few weeks, we'll, we'll understand which one has had more uh, impact. There's an interesting uh, article in the, in the Times today, mm. in the leader, which says that those countries in the Spanish flu pandemic at the beginning of the 20th century that uh, imposed the toughest um, uh, lockdown procedures, uh, in the end, not only had better health results, but their economies bounced back much more quickly. Yes. I mean, so, I think the thing is that because we have come this far, and Dominic Raab said this the other day, it would be foolish to sort of lose all of those gains by opening everything up a bit too early. Um, but I do think there is a, a, obviously a, um, you know, a, a balance to be struck because I've heard from friends of mine who are older, like over 70, but there's an awful lot of people over 70 who are very fit, are very busy, and who also are major contributors to the economy, by the way, in various different ways. Some of them own businesses, some of them just spend quite a lot of money, generally speaking, out in bars and restaurants. But they are not going to sit for uh, the government telling them to stay home for 18 months. Well, obviously, 70 is the new 60, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, absolutely. We're living a lot longer. There's a lot of people who have their kids off their hands. They've paid down their mortgage. Yeah. They've got a big disposable income. I, I said that's not everyone. There's still some pe pension of poverty. But you can't lock these people in. I mean, it was, people are talking about October 2021. I mean, it's ludicrous. That that just can't happen. Right. Because the economy needs the spending power of, of the grey pound. And those people need to get back into the restaurants. They need to get back into the pubs and the garden centres and, the, you know, on the high street. You know, the high street was already suffering for, for, as a result of the internet. You know, this is potentially going to kill it off. And I do think you've got to have those older shoppers who are used to going into shops who are not so comfortable with the internet. Mm. They're going to keep the high street sustainable. Well, so do you know the what sooner I think, we can get them out, the better. The, what I think, Stuart, actually, is that this will be the completely reverse effect of, of that because given that you're quite right to say that the high streets were suffering... Because of the way that the government... I mean, it's a story in the Times today, I think, where it says that the government is currently going to be supporting something like a million workers through the various schemes that they've got, the packages that they've got to help people through this. And at the end of the day, the economic stimulus that comes from this in order to stop the economy from crashing might be actually a very positive thing. Absolutely. And if you look at history... Um Right back to the Black Death. I mean, neither of us were around. Well, I'm guessing you weren't around then in the <laughs> mid-14th century, Mike. Uh, but even the Black Death, if you look at the plague in London, if you look at the pandemic in 1918, if, if you look historically at these pandemics, uh, the economy has boomed post you know, these, these intergenerational yeah. crises. Even mm. the war, you know, in the period from the mid-40s to the early 50s, it boomed. Uh, part of that, of course, in, in that period was very significant amounts of government money. And I, th I do think it's right that, you know, I'm not one of those people who is sort of libertarian free marketeer and say, you know, the, the private sector's got to do everything. Government does have a role in these 
you know, once in a century instances. And I think you're right that there will be some government money around. We're going to have to pay this back. It may be we have to pay a coronavirus tax, you know, one or two pence in the pound or mm. inheritance tax or something like that, because this money's all being borrowed. We don't want to lumber our children and grandchildren with massive debt. But nevertheless, that money in the short term say the next three or four years, is going to be needed to keep the economy afloat. Yes, I think you're absolutely right. Stuart, great to talk to you. Thanks very much indeed. Enjoy painting your front door black. Stuart, looking for some black paint out there. Uh, that's what he's going to be doing. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Now, we're joined now by Dr Yusuf El-Gingihi, uh, who is the author of How to Dismantle the NHS in 10 Easy Steps. It sounds like uh, um, a, a book which is not full of laughs. Dr Yusuf, a very good morning to you. Good morning, Mike. Um, thank you for having me on. Yeah, no, I mean, it's, it's a tongue-in-cheek title. So, yeah, the, the book's obviously a bit more serious, although it's written with, um, with uh, as I say, uh, with, the, with the, the title, certainly with my tongue firmly in my cheek. I'm obviously very much in favour of um, universal public health care. Yes, indeed. It's interesting, though, isn't it? Because one of the things that has caused us to look into the NHS and how it's run is that some of the log jams in the system are simply caused by the system itself because it is a very unwieldy and large organisation and the way that some countries have perhaps been able to adjust to the COVID-19 virus and the supply and demand of everything from you know, gowns to, to doctors um, is a lot easier to navigate. Yeah, so, I mean, my, my book, one of the things I've tried to address is really to, to bust a whole bunch of myths, really, and, and one of them is that the NHS is is just this massive um, bureaucracy. Um, and and, and it's, it's, in actual fact, you know, as much as, as it you know, at times can be, um, a, a, uh, something of, of a, a bureaucracy, the evidence shows that public health care actually tends to be a lot more efficient and certainly a lot more cost-efficient um, than, say, mixed systems, market systems, especially privatised systems. And one of the reasons is that with a public uh, system like the NHS, or at least what it used to be when it, was, um, when it, when it started out, is, is that you have a much more integrated, or you're meant to have a much more integrated, unified system, whilst when you have more marketized systems, and sadly the NHS has gone down that road over the past 30, 40 years, then you start to get, especially when you look at outsourcing, um, contracting out, um, all kinds of other market mechanisms, you get a lot of um, fragmentation. Um, so that's, that's an interesting issue. But I think the, the PPE um, scandal, you know, it's a much bigger thing to do with, it goes, you know, way beyond the NHS. And a lot of this is about um, government policy and obviously supply chains. Um, but I guess we'll, we'll probably go into some of that. Yes, we will. But I think the thing about the NHS is that, you know, it is a big organisation. There's no question about that. It's a very big uh, uh, and, and unwieldy organisation in parts, and in other parts it's, it works very well. What I object to is is that, you know, you, you either are a supporter of the NHS or you want to sell it, you know, and it's not like that. You know, there are people who genuinely love the NHS. I'm one of them. You know, I've used it many times. I had two, two of my children born uh, under the NHS auspices. Um, I've had great care... Uh, handed out to, to, to people that I know, friends of mine, you know, fantastic care done uh, to, to, to my children whenever they've been sick. And, you know, I'm not in any way um, anti the NHS, but it's like when you start to be critical of parts of it, which don't work terribly well, uh, you're branded as some kind of mad free marketeer who wants to yeah. sell it all off to Donald Trump. And that's simply not the case. No, 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 absolutely. I mean, I agree with you. Things shouldn't at all be black and white. Um, I think one of the things that, that's frustrating for for, for for those of us like myself who are who are trying to to defend the NHS, is that um, the NHS has, has become something of a 
um, a logo with a huge plethora of kind of market private activity going on underneath. And a lot of the problems, that, um, at least you know, the argument I make in the book, a lot of the problems we've seen in the NHS over um, you know, particularly this decade, uh, the last, well, I should say the last decade, um, but really over, over a long period of time, have actually been generated by this catastrophic experiment to turn it into a market. So, for example, a very good, um, a very good, um, uh, well, very unfortunate, I should say, example of this was um, Midstaff's, you know, the huge scandal at, at Midstaff's hospital with, um, you know, with, with a large number of, of deaths. Yeah. Um, and in fact, you know, the, beyond those, those headlines about, you know, the, the, how poor NHS care was and so on, and um, was actually a very different story, which was that uh, Midstaffs was trying to become what's known as a foundation trust. Um, so, so effectively to become a kind of semi-independent um, business, if you like. But how did that affect their ability to ignore several warnings about the fact that there was a, a bad practice going on? Yeah, so one of the things that happened was that they were basically, once you're, you're becoming a foundation trust, which is unfortunately now what the majority of hospital trusts or NHS trusts in the country are, is that you, instead of what historically NHS trusts did, which was to prioritise patient care, they're actually forced to prioritise their bottom line. And if they start to get into debt, then they run into huge problems. And this is a very kind of strange artificial situation when you're talking about what's meant to be a public healthcare system that suddenly the individual components, such as NHS trusts, are having to worry about debt. And so as a result, what they did was they cut frontline staff in order to try and, 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 um, and mitigate against the, the, the kind of financial issues. And, of course, that then had this, this disastrous... Well, if that's the case, though, why didn't that happen everywhere else that went into a, into a trust? Um, well, each 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 area will obviously be very very different. Um, so it's not so the practice itself of going into a trust; it's the fact that they were uh, acting wrongly. So I don't think you can make that presumption at all. I mean, obviously, I can't, I can't comment on the specific. Um, I'm not. You know, well, no, but you can't say that the system is somehow wrong if it only went wrong in one place and everywhere else it was fine. Well, no, I mean that's not true, is it? I mean, we've, we've had. Well, well, I don't know of any other massive scandals like Mid Staffordshire. Well, we've we've had a number of of scandals, and my point is that. Um, there's obviously been a, you know, a series of these, these scandals. Midstaffs was obviously one of the most prominent ones. My point is, is that I think a lot of the times, and I've seen this personally as someone who's, you know, who's, whose dad is looked after by the NHS, who works in the NHS, who's, who's had uh, my own life saved by the NHS, and as you've said, you know, I've had you know, my, my daughter born on, on the NHS. Um, but you know, we, where I've you know, we've seen a lot of the time as both as on both sides, as a doctor, as a patient, as a relative. Um, you know, you see this very clearly that the staff across the board, if you speak to any kind of, to most doctors, nurses, healthcare professionals, um, are not able to, to deliver the care that we would always like to. Um, and that's, a lot of that is, is generated by, by, it's manufactured by deliberate policies. So, you know, the, the obvious... Well, you're going down this road, though, Dr. Yusuf, of making out that politicians are somehow ruining the NHS, which I don't accept. Right. Well, I mean, you know, you'd have to read the book, Mike. Um, well, I haven't read the book, unfortunately, but I'm not going to have you coming on national radio station and tell me that the Tory party is trying to kill the NHS because it's simply wrong and, quite frankly, it's quite offensive. Yeah, no, it's not offensive. They're all on the record, actually, very clearly, a lot of the... No, they're not. That's absolute rubbish. That is absolute and utter rubbish. If you're telling me that Boris Johnson, who nearly died as a result of getting COVID-19 and thanked the NHS personally, actually has an agenda to destroy it, I think you're up a gum tree, mate. That's something that's happened recently, Mike, that he became very ill. That's got nothing to do with it. If you're going to tell me that the Tory party wants to destroy the NHS, I think you're talking absolute well, and we, utter we rubbish. Run the, we can run through the, the 
historical record on this. I mean, if, if you really want to, but I suspect we haven't got the time to do that. But this, is, this actually, my book isn't about the Conservative Party. We have time. If you want to tell me what you think the Tory party are doing to so, destroy the NHS, so, I mean, then go ahead. So we'll start probably with um, David Cameron. So David Cameron, when... Um, uh, no, obviously was, was whose own son was severely disabled. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And David Cameron. That's, so that's the personal side, and that's often very different from the political side. Um, I don't agree with you. Well, okay. So David Cameron quoted as saying specifically that he wants to turn the NHS into a fantastic business. That was that was his quote. Yeah, what's wrong with that? Well, that's completely divorced from the whole concept. No, this is. This, I'm not having it. I'm sorry. His own yeah. son, Ivan. Sure you're not having it. But his uh, own son, Ivan, was mm -hmm. severely disabled and was treated by the NHS. For you yeah, to say wanted, that he wanted to destroy it this is, is why nonsense. It's so, so horribly disingenuous is that that his son was looked after by the NHS, and then he introduces a piece of legislation, the Health and Social Care Act, or his government does, under Andrew Lansley as Health Secretary, which, by all accounts, you know, even Conservatives now are in agreement that that was a disastrous piece of legislation, which basically ramped up um, privatisation, outsourcing. We know it actually has at least doubled the number of contracts going to the private... Let me ask you a question. Do you think the NHS is coping currently with COVID-19? Do I think it's coping? Yes. I think it's certainly coped better than, than we would have anticipated based on 10 years of, of you know, and longer actually, but 10 years particularly of, of you know, cuts and other... So policies. 10 years so, of cuts and a complete and utter destruction of the NHS by the Tory party has resulted in the NHS coping with a worldwide pandemic pretty well. Yeah, I mean, it, it's coped in, insofar as obviously there, there, there hasn't been... So what's the problem? ...collapse of the healthcare system, which was what was feared because of what had happened in Italy. Have you got any criticism in your book about Tony Blair and the PFI yeah, uh, yeah, situation? Absolutely. Yeah, well, this is, if you give me a minute to, to explain, I, my agenda is not, it's actually cross-party. Why do you have an agenda? You're a doctor. Because medicine is actually very political, um, so I can quote you. That this is one Medicine of is not political, you're making it political. No, medicine is absolutely political. When you're talking about population health, when you're talking about the design of healthcare systems, when you're talking about even the practice of medicine, these things are all very are extremely political, I'm afraid. So the creation of a universal public healthcare system free at the point of need... What do you say about Tony Blair in your book, Dr. Yusuf? It's incredibly political thing. What do you say about Tony Blair's PFI programme in yeah, your book? PFI I mean, is disastrous, absolutely appalling, scandalous thing, by, by, again, by the admission of of the, the, the people who are in charge of it. So well, would you not say that that's, that's, that's caused far more damage in terms of leaving a debt if you, mountain? If you've looked at my articles for The Guardian, for The Independent, you'll have seen... I don't that. read The Guardian. OK, well, The Independent... Whatever. I don't read that either. Well, good for you. Maybe you should widen your, your, um, your reading a bit. Um, I'm, your I'm appalled, Dr Yusuf, that you are taking this your, political no, stance... I'm trying to tell you a few home truths. You no, know, you're not telling me home truths. You're telling me lefty propaganda. And I'm, putting, no. and I'm going to cut you off because I've had enough of it, quite frankly. Go away. This is Talk Radio. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.
Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. Gather your children around the radio because it is now time for the homeschooling section uh, of the show. And I'm delighted to say uh, that today we're going to have a virtual tour uh, of the Tower of London uh, with London Blue Badge Tourist Guide Pepe Martinez. Uh, Pepe, a very good afternoon to you. How are you? Good morning, Mike. I'm very well, thank you. Very and nice to uh, very nice to meet you. I understand that you've prepared a sort of virtual tour for us. So, so would you like to give us, say, for example, just a little bit of brief history of the Tower of London first? Yes, I'd love to. So, firstly, welcome to Her Majesty's Palace and Fortress, the Tower of London. Mm. And if this was a regular day, in about 25 minutes, there would actually be a gun salute for the Queen's birthday oh, yes. on the wharf in front of the palace. Mm. So, sadly, that's not happening today. No, sadly. Um, and I suppose today we don't see any beef eaters hanging around there either, do we? No, but, of course, they're going to be inside because what people are often surprised when they learn that 150 people actually live inside the Tower of London. Yes. Um, and interestingly, that you mentioned beef eaters. It is said that more people have been into space than have been beef eaters at the Tower of London. Is that right? It's quite incredible. That is incredible. Because, of course, it is a working... Um, a palace, I suppose, or castle. Do you call it a castle or a palace? It's it's known as a palace. Okay. Uh, essentially, it's a fortress with, you know, a palace as well. I mean, it's been used for many, many different functions in its history. Yes. So we made coins here. Uh, Sir Isaac Newton was master of the mint at the Tower of London for 30 years. It's been a royal observatory. It's been a royal zoo. The first ever elephant in England was seen at the Tower of London. Wow. The first ever lion in England was given to King Henry III in the 1250s. He loved it so much he adopted the lion. It became the symbol of England. Even the first polar bear in England was seen at the Tower of London. Huh. Uh, they, they shackled the bear and let it go swimming in the river. <laughs> Amazing. Lost, and, of course, Traitor's Gate, is, which is now covered up, was, was very notorious, wasn't it? Well, now, we've got lots of young people listening. When they think of the Tower of London, they think of the darker history of the Tower because, of course, most famously, it was used as a prison, a place of torture and a place of execution. Yes. Now, Mike, do you know, have a guess how many people were executed at the Tower of London? Ooh, now, that's a good question. I'm going to say about uh, 50. Oh, it's a pretty good guess. Now, I know you've been to the Tower. I believe you've been I to have. the Tower. I have. I've been a few times, yeah. Most people that have never been to the Tower have this, I guess, romantic notion that thousands and thousands of people were executed at the Tower of London. Mm. The reality is less than a dozen. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. In fact, more people were shot for spying during the First and Second World War than were actually killed for treason during the time of King Henry VIII. Does that number include the princes in the Tower? Uh, actually, well, they weren't officially executed. Right. They were murdered. Would you like me to tell the story Please. of the murder of the princes in yes, the Tower? Yes, absolutely. Are you sitting comfortably? Yes. OK, we're going to go back to the year 1483. <laughs> King Edward IV has died. His young son, a 12-year-old boy, is acclaimed the new king. Long live the king, King Edward V. Now, as a 12-year-old boy, he is too young to rule by himself, so his uncle, Richard, Duke of Gloucester, the younger brother of the king who's just died, is made regent, a guiding hand, making decisions for the boys. Mm. Because the new king has a younger brother, Richard, Duke of York. They're brought to London, taken to the Tower for safekeeping. The uncle is then supposed to go to the Westminster Abbey to prepare it for the coronation, but he has other ideas because he persuades Parliament that the boys are illegitimate 
and he persuades them that he is the next in line and he is duly crowned King Richard III. Wow. The boys are never seen again. Until 200 years later, some workmen are digging on a staircase at the White Tower and they discover a wooden box. Thinking they've found buried treasure, they open up the box to be disappointed to find two human skeletons. The king at the time, superstitious, convinced that it's the bones of the princess in the tower, has been taken to Westminster Abbey and they're reinterred in a place that today is called Innocence Corner. Wow. And so have they ever been tested? Because obviously now we probably could tell when That's they were a very from. very good question. Now, they were allowed to open it once in 1933 to examine the bones. Mm. Definitely children, definitely human, one age between 12 and 14, the other age between 8 and 10. But as long as the Queen is alive, and I think at any point in the near or maybe distant future, Westminster Abbey are not going to give permission right. for the bones to be disturbed again, I think. Uh -huh. And the legend is that they were drowned, is it not, in a, in a well, vat of, of something or other? Well, there's lots of different stories. I mean, even Shakespeare covers this yeah. in his epic play. Um, there are lots of different theories. Who has most to gain? We will never know. The great thing about this story, it is one of the greatest two dunnits in history. And don't forget that Agatha Christie is one of the most successful authors in history. Yeah. We love a whodunit. We love finding about these kind of crimes in our history. Yes. And I think it will be sad if we do find out, because then, of course, you know, the game will be up. Of course. So, the other great legend of the Tower of London, which I love, is the one about the ravens. So for those of you that have not been to the Tower, you might have heard of the legendary ravens. So some people have suggested they are the current prisoners of the Tower. Mm. We don't know why the ravens first came to the Tower. There are stories that they were there as long ago as the 1660s. However, most people believe they came in the 19th century because of the moat. Yes. The moat was dug too deep. It ended up being just an open sewer full of poo and dead animals, and we think it would have attracted the birds. Mm. Uh, did you know that one of the beef eaters is actually called the Raven Master, and his job is to look after the ravens? Ah, so they feed them? They feed them. They mm. give them 75 grams of fresh meat every day. They get a boiled egg once a week, and if they're well-behaved, they get an entire hare once a month. A wow. And they, they devour everything, the teeth, the skin, the bones... Everything. Amazing. And, and tell us about what people say would happen if they disappear. Well, there is a legend that says if the ravens fly off and leave, then the castle and the kingdom will fall. Now, they used to clip the wings because they were pretty superstitious. Yeah. Now, they just remove a few feathers. It throws the birds off, slightly off kilter, but they can fly. Yes. A couple of years ago, one of the ravens was found in a tree in Greenwich. Yes, I think I remember that. And there was all kinds yeah. of harbingers of doom following it, right? Know, Saying know, this is the end. They're all, they're all rings, you see. So they have this very distinctive, colourful ring on, on one of their claws. Yeah. So they are, I think, famous all over the world. Sure. And, and finally, uh, this is fascinating, by the way. We could do this for hours, Pepe. But um, finally, what about the crown jewels? Because that's the other great attraction that people like to go and see. So I would recommend to your visitors, to your listeners, that if they go to the Tower of London, do the crown jewels first. It is the most popular part of the tower. Yeah. Um, the crown jewels used in the coronation of our kings and queens. And a couple of things to think about. Firstly, when visitors see them, they are the real crown jewels used in the coronations at Westminster Abbey. But pretty much everything that visitors see only dates from 1660 and later. Right. Because sadly... 
when we were in the Civil War period, Oliver Cromwell destroyed, melted down and sold off the crown jewels. Now, if, if people do get a chance to see them, one thing they need to look out for, there is a diamond called the First Star of Africa, which is 530.2 carats. Wow. Said to be the largest clear diamond in the world, and it's estimated to be worth a half a billion pounds. Amazing. That's one diamond. And it's incredibly well guarded as well, isn't it, inside that chamber? Oh, yeah. I mean, there's a vault door that weighs two tonnes. It's about uh, 10 inches thick. And every evening there's a ceremony called the... Um, the ooh, the ceremony of the keys, yes, which is actually free. You can apply online for free tickets at nine fifty three every night, where they officially close up the tower. So right. uh, people should look online, and they can actually get into the tower for free if they're prepared to kind of uh, book right. in advance. Right, it's fascinating. What a wonderful story you've told us, Pepe. Thank you so much. We really enjoyed that. Pepe Martinez, London Blue Badge Tourist Guide. If you're not fascinated by what he's just told you, then uh, you need to uh, go for a long walk around the garden and come back and become fascinated because that is, is part of our historical um, country that we live in. It's marvellous. It's absolutely brilliant. That was, of course, our homeschooling for the day. I hope you enjoyed it. Now uh, we're going to do something even more remarkable. We're going to talk to John Tyrone, who is, of course, the Master Chef host, a celebrity chef as well. John, a very good afternoon to you. G'day, how are you? Thanks very much indeed for joining us. Now, you were about to tell us about Korean food, which I only just discovered probably a couple of years ago, um, which is absolutely delicious. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I did a, an amazing um, sort of eight-week tour of South Korea mm. a number of years ago, and the show's being re-aired on Food Network from tonight. Oh, from last night, actually. It goes out for about ten episodes. But it's sort of one of those extraordinary cuisines that very few people know about. Yeah. And and I think what's really fascinating about it is we're sort of used to, uh, you know, food which is about flavour and um, about texture. So, you know, when you have a pack of crisps, you know, when you, when, it, when you eat it, the sound is as important as actually how it tastes. Right. You know what I mean? That sort of crispy, that's what makes you very excited. In Korea, they've got this third thing, which is sensation. So they have things which are searing, searing hot, and they have things which are freezing, freezing cold. Right. And so what you do is you get this sort of taste texture and sensation all at the same time. I mean, it's quite an incredible cuisine. And, of course, uh, you know, the, the years of, of the Korean War, meant there's, there's lots of things there which are, are, are very, very frugal but very delicious. Yes, and they use a lot of lights, really bright colours. I mean, funnily enough, the only reason I got, I got into it was because a listener, bizarrely, a, a British guy who listened to me when I was on Talk Sport, sent me a recipe because he knew that I was into cooking. And he sent me a recipe which was basically a sort of chicken dish and he used that kind of red chilli paste to put That's it in exactly. and it's got loads and loads of onions in it and it's beautiful, absolutely yeah. beautiful. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. They've got sort of three jangs, which are their paste, which they use. Yeah. And gochujang is the fiery red one, which is used in a lot of, of, of dishes. Right. Um, but, I mean, I, you know, the, the thing is about them, it, it, the one most important thing for Koreans is kimchi, which is this pickled cabbage. Yes. Which has got spice in it. Um, and it's, it's akin to sauerkraut, which, of course, is used throughout Europe. Sure. But very, very good food. And it's eaten with every single meal. Mm. And it has to be eaten with every single meal. And, and you know, it's very good for gut bacteria. And the, the great thing about Korean food is whenever you go to a restaurant or you go to a place in South Korea and you, you eat something, they always tell you it's very good for you. Right. Nothing, nothing's bad for you, <laughs> which is fantastic. Well, absolutely. And, and, of course, people think of South Asian cooking, Southeast Asian cooking sometimes as, as being very kind of uh, meaty. But they also do quite a lot of tofu, veg vegetarian dishes as well. 
Absolutely, yes. The thing is, they use rice cakes a lot. There's something called tapoki, uh-huh. which they make, which are, are fantastic just in a chili sauce. And lots and lots of tofu. And actually, meat is quite used in, in very, very small amounts. Right. Um, it may be used in flavorings. Uh, lots of rice, lots and lots of noodles as well. Right. And the, the other thing which is fascinating me is they eat really, really hot food during hot weather. Mm. And they eat really cold food in cold weather. Right which is sort of almost completely opposite of what we do. But mm. It makes sense because if you eat hot food during hot weather, it, your body starts to cool itself down. Yes. So um, I, I think it's one of those... The other thing that's great about Korean food is, is Korean barbecue. And, you, you know, you talk about meat. Mm. But what they do is they have tiny, tiny pieces of meat. And then they have various leaves, which they then wrap the meat in and they put something on, on top, which is called samjang, which is another paste which comes in a sort of green tub. Right. And you fold the whole thing up. So it's like a sort of a salad thing with a tiny, tiny piece of spiced meat in the middle of it. And it's delicious. And it's called sam, S-A-A-M. Okay. And it's a fantastic way to eat uh, barbecue meat. So instead of big hunks of meat... Tiny, tiny slivers, little tiny yes. pieces wrapped in these lovely lettuce leaves. Oh, nice. And what about the pork-filled dumplings? Because I've never, I've never quite known how to make those. Are they easy to make? Yeah, man do, I suppose. In, in most cultures around the world, you'll have a dumpling of some kind. Right. So um, in uh, Korea, it's a mandu. In Italy, of course, it's a ravioli. Yes. Uh, in Japan, it's gyoza. Um, so, you know, in and, and China, there's little sort of dim sum dumplings. Right. But actually, it's the same thing. It's a dumpling dough, and then inside, uh, lots of cabbage, a tiny bit of pork, lots of garlic, um, a, a little bit of, of um, soy, but not very much soy. And that's you make your filling mixture up, and then you just wrap the whole thing up, and you can either fry them, or you can steam them. Oh, They're excellent. delicious. Because I'm, I'm not just asking for myself, because I've started, bizarrely, because we're in coronavirus territory, I've started a, a food podcast. I, I basically cook stuff in my kitchen uh, ah. and talk into my iPhone and, and send it out. And it's done really well. It got into the charts above Jamie Oliver. <laughs> well, good on you. I mean, I must, I must go and have a look at it. It's called MG's that... Kitchen. What's it called? MG's Kitchen. I'll have a look at it. I, I'm, good on you. I mean, Lisa and I are doing the same every day. We're putting up a a recipe on Instagram every yeah. single day of basic bits because right. trying to help everybody out. But I think the more that we learn about things, and what I love, Mike, if you're doing this, is you're talking about stuff which a lot of people don't know about. Mm. And a mandu actually looks like a tortellini. Right. So you sort of... You, the, and you can find the, the, the dough mixture online or see how to make them. Um, and then you just roll them out into a round, put the bit in the middle of it, fold it over like an envelope so it looks like a half moon, and then wrap it around your finger... Um, and I'll tell you what they're great in. They're great in soup. Okay. So just make a sort of bowl of soup, you know, like a chicken soup from a chicken stock cube okay. or whatever, and then put your dumpling inside it and you've got yourself a meal. Wow, that sounds lovely. Yeah. And, and as, as a lot of the ingredients easy to find because I remember when I had to go and find that red paste that you were referring to earlier, I ended up going to a shop in Chinatown here in London. Um, so, I mean, I don't know how easy a lot of the spices are to get, but, I mean, it's probably getting easier now in the supermarkets, isn't it? Well, I think it's easy in the supermarkets, but of course now we're all in lockdown online. Yeah. Um, so you can go to a lot of the Korean supermarkets and they will send it to you. Okay. Got Jang, which comes in the red tub, um, is available in my local um, Sainsbury's. Other stores are available, of course. Yes. Um, but, um, and, but I do sometimes buy it online. The green tub, you'll probably need to go online, which is called Sam Jang. But yes, you can buy all these ingredients now online and they will be delivered in a couple of days or maybe be a week. But, you know, we're here until 7th of May, so may as well put the order in sure. and see what we can do later on. Brilliant. But and if you, can't, if you can't catch it live on the Food Network, is it somewhere else that the people can, ca- can catch yeah, up with it? Yeah, it's called D... I think it's called D-Play. OK. Um, D-Play, on, and, and D-Play is also paying my 
old one, which was John Throes Australia, where I went to Australia about four or five years ago. Brilliant. So it's a really quite nice virtual tour of the world. I did Australia, I've done Korea, um, and you know, there's lots of things out there. And it is a nice time to sit back and watch shows like this. It is. And find a destination that you might decide you want to go to later in life. Understand a bit about the food and the culture so that when you get there, it's not quite as frightening. No. It's definitely my favourite type of television to watch is, is, is guys like yourself, knowledgeable about food, going to interesting places and, and showing what people eat. I love it. Well, Mike, I've got to tell you something. Have you, have you actually heard of Army Stew from Korea? I haven't. Oh, you've got to have a look at it. OK. Army Stew is this incredible thing, which is noodles uh, with hot dogs in it, sliced right. bologna, and then cheese on top with chilli <laughs> inside it. It I'm sounds in. really odd. I'm in. But it's delicious. It's really cool. Army stew. Wow. OK, brilliant stuff. John, thank you so much. John Turo's Korean food tour. Uh, get it on the Food Network. Uh, it's on at 7pm weeknights. I'm definitely checking in with that. Uh, let's talk to Ken in Ascot before we go. Hello, Ken. Morning, Mike. How are you? Very well, sir. What can I do for you? A uh, couple of very, very quick things, and I'll tell you about this new uh, um, Responders uh, app I've had a problem with the, uh, this morning for the very first call. First of all, you shouldn't bail Branson out. I sent you a tweet. He only owns 20%. Right. Um, so get rid of him. Right. Uh, second thing is, um, big fans for adults now for uh, uh, the schooling section. I follow Greg Smy Rumsby and uh, also the uh, um, chap you had on, I can't remember his name, about the uh, bird-watching thing. I found this oh, app yes. called War Warbler. You spell Warbler without an E. There's an app. You can go out to where any bird's singing, uh, um, press the button to record, and it tells you what it is. But okay. anyway, that's the quick thing. Brilliant, OK. What, ha what happened this morning? I uh, uh, volunteered about uh, uh, five weeks ago yeah. for this uh, um, NHS responder, right. and um, I've just left it on, and uh, I got a call this morning. Um, what happened was uh, I rang the number, and it turns out it was the doctor and not the patient, yeah. uh, or it says a lady isolating, and uh, um, she wouldn't give me the number for obvious reasons, GDPR and uh, uh, Data Protection Act, etc. Right. Um, and she said she was changing it on the website. So I rang the uh, um, helpline number, but this just shows you, obviously, you know, in times like this, uh, it's been put through very, very quickly, yeah. because uh, the lady I spoke to, who turned out to be in South End at some call centre, she said, I can't trace you, I can't trace the lady, and I can't trace the doctor. Right. So I thought, well, what the hell is the helpline for then? What it sounds to me is that there's been no what's called user acceptance testing. If you go and buy a car, yeah. the last thing you'd go and do is not give it a test drive before you buy it, which is user acceptance testing. That looks like what's happened with this app. They haven't tried it out with users, etc. Right. Well, now, I suppose they'd say they haven't had time in their defence, but I have heard similar stories as, as, as yours, Ken. Uh, um, you know, it's it, it always something to uh, um, to look out for. Yes. But, uh, by the way, two other very quick things to come out with that. Thought Police is brilliant. Thank you. Uh, M MG's Kitchen, I've actually watched most of them twice now. And uh, the only problem is with you being on YouTube, because I'm taking phone calls yeah. and doing Microsoft Teams, I don't actually get to finish your uh, YouTube stream till about 3 or 4 o'clock in the <laughs> afternoon, but it's a good job it's there. Well, thank Finish you. Job, Mike. Uh, and the plank list on Facebook, I haven't been able to update it because, obviously, you, you don't post... Uh, uh, well, we um, don't film it anymore. We just do it as a exactly. podcast now. Exactly. That's what I've been listening to. But yeah. as soon as you start doing that, I'll fill in the uh, Facebook page and so uh, everybody can see where uh, planks are. But I nominate number one plank this week, is, or planks, I should say, uh, um, 
you know, that lady over from California. (laughs) Harry! Yes, Harry! Yes. And by, by, by the way, it's Prince Charles here, mate. <laughs> and that Meghan woman, absolute bloody disgrace. I've tried to tell Harry, never took a damn bloody piece of notice of me. Absolutely. Well done, Ken. What a top man. Talk radio across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday, on Talk Radio via DAB online or via the Talk Radio app. And if you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us on 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.